Well, hello to our new listeners. Thanks for joining. And to our returning guests, welcome back. Welcome to Season 6 of the Morosibo Podcast. My name is Mo. In this season, like you've been used to, get ready for more amazing stories, more inspirational stories to help you set your stories free. I created this podcast as a resource for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them to share stories and processes, as well as to build communities around important salient issues that affect all of us as humans. So on this show, you get to hear amazing stories from people like you who show us how to get more out of life. The stories featured here are by people whose journey I am partly inspired by, as well as challenged by, but most importantly, people whose courage and vulnerability have afforded us an opportunity to hear their life stories. And I hope you find them as inspiring. Now enjoy your show. And don't forget to share this episode and the other ones. to the podcast everyone today i am going to be scientific a little bit um, more than i would usually do on the podcast just kidding but i'm super excited to um have a chat with um someone that i work with and also sharing his experience which i know will be very encouraging to um most people listening so um his name is um, mr pericole he's 65 years of age he resides in texas and has been retired for about three years now about two years ago, actually two years to this date, sometime in June of 2021, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He underwent surgery, which is radical prostatectomy, where they took out the prostate um, two months after his diagnosis. And as of this month, 2023, let's ring that bell. His PS, which is the, those I don't know that knowledge, whenever you're cancer free, you ring, you ring the bell. PSA is the um, blood test that has like a, it's called a process specific antigen. And this is where they draw your blood and then check the protein levels, which are like biomarkers for prostate cancer, um, has been undetectable for two years, which is a good deal. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Mr. Pericol. He's one of my community advisory board members and his, you know, his contributions have really, really shifted my game as a scientist. And I'm learning a lot from him and I'm several others on the board. So thank you, Mr. Cole, for coming on the podcast today. Good. Well, it's good to be here, uh, particularly being able to say that after receiving a cancer diagnosis, it's always good to be here. We're glad to have you uh, here. And congrats on your two-year anniversary of being, you know, cancer-free and all of yeah, that stuff. Yeah. That's that's the continuous goal. Um, uh, two years uh, cancer-free uh, as of June 2nd. And as you stated, June uh, June 2nd, two years ago, 2021. Yes, yes 2021. When, uh, when I had wow. my biopsy. And, of course, uh, the biopsy uh, in four of the 12 cells uh, showed cancer. Mm-hmm. And then there was a fifth one that was um, a little inconclusive. Yeah. And at that point in time, they 
looked at my my Gleason score uh, as they evaluated the uh, biopsy, and it gave me a Gleason score of eight, which mm. they said was a aggressive, yeah, um, getting aggressive form of cancer, and so based on that, I I, I asked the uh, urologist, well. What am I looking at? How soon do I need to do something? And of course, the response from the urologist was as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really know what that really meant. You know how how to uh, how to digest that. Um, and I think I let that conversation uh, maybe hasten some of the decisions that I made. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't know what as quickly as possible meant. Does that mean mean six months? Does that mean two months? Yeah. And of course, you know, people hear horror stories about uh, particular di- diseases. Uh, one person may have it and they may live 15 years. Another person uh, gets diagnosed with it and 30 days later, they're that gone. Is, so, yeah, yeah. So you never know, you know, what that means. And so my thinking, when you say, if I were to tell you a little, a little something about myself, my thinking is that when you tell me as soon as possible, uh, that means possibly sooner. <laughs> uh, I had experience back in 2014. Mm-hmm. I had a new replacement. Um, total knee replacement and I was doing very well with my recovery and then I fell one day mm. and then a couple of days later I fell again and I said that there was something wrong and I began to get numbness and tingling and that kind of thing. Well it turns out that I had a disc in my neck uh, pressing up against my spinal cord mm. and so I had to go see a a neurosurgeon, a neurologist, and then a neurosurgeon. And at that point, well, I said I had fell a couple of times. Yeah. Now my walking was getting to be very unsteady. Um, so the neurosurgeon says to me, um, you need to get this taken care of as soon as possible. Now, mind you, this is in May of 2014. Mm. As soon as possible, he said, because if you don't, you'll be in a wheelchair. What? So, so I said, okay. He says, go out, speak to my receptionist, and get the surgery scheduled. I go out. She looks at the schedule. She says, well, the earliest I can get you is in September. And I'm back to that as soon as possible. What does that mean? He just told me if I don't get this done soon, I'll be in a wheelchair. <laughs> I could. I could feel the progression going down daily. And so I said, let me go back in and let me talk to the neurosurgeon. And Mm -hmm. I went back into his office and I said, as soon as possible, she's saying September, that's not soon to me. Long story short, uh, June 17th, which was a little less than three weeks later, I had surgery, um, fused my neck, this four through seven, it did leave permanent bruising on my spinal cord, mm. which has left me with neuropathy, pain in my hands and all that. But again, 
based on the as soon as possible. Proactiveness, yeah. Yes. And so when I talked to my urologist, <laughs> she used the term as soon as possible. You knew what to do. I knew what to do. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, um, let's, let's, that, and thanks for sharing all of that, especially um, the, the proactiveness with your health and the importance of just getting things done. I can imagine that during those times, even getting the news of, you know, you might be in a wheelchair or this is, you know, glucose score of eight, which for those that don't know, um, let's, let's break that down a little bit. So in cancer, well, in breast cancer, sorry, glucose score is a grading system and they used to evaluate the aggressiveness or severity of prostate cancer based on how the cancer cells appear under a microscope, right? We yes. know what a prostate cancer cell should look like. So what, by the time they biopsy, meaning they go in there, they scrape a little bit of the prostate cells and they put it under the microscope. If it doesn't resemble what a prostate cell should look like, then they start grading it. This was named after a, a doctor called Dr. Donald Gleason. And um, a pathologist usually does that. And they have different grades. You know, Usually two to six means it resembles a normal prostate tissue. When you're going to seven, it's like, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, um, primary grade. And sometimes they might even do three plus four or four plus three, but anything over eight, it's poorly differentiated. It does not resemble a normal prostate cancer. And cancer's glycine scores of eight to 10 is considered high grade or highly aggressive. So you're going to hear what's like glycine score, PSA, biopsy, rectal examination. I'll break all of that down for you. So we don't want to lose half of the room, but these are important things to keep note of when we're talking about prostate cancer. Mr. Cole, let's dial in um, the... No, that let's dive down a little bit to your growing up years, your formative years. So walk us through how you grew up, your family structure. And I'm asking because, as you know, one of the risk factors for prostate cancer is family history. So at least knowing that and if you even had the knowledge of that or if there was a positive family history, you know, of, of, of cancer or prostate cancer in your family and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. As you stated at the uh, onset, I am 65 years old. I'll be 66 in October. And I grew up in uh, Detroit, Michigan, in a uh, two-parent family household. I had uh, one brother and uh, two sisters growing up. And then my parents eventually um, adopted my cousin whose mother passed. So we, we really say three sisters and two brothers. Um pretty normal growing up, although I did grow up in an area of Detroit near uh, a refinery, near Ford Motor Company, and and then I eventually um, wound up working for the Detroit Water and Sewage Department for about, uh, well, I, I worked for 30 years for the city and 22 of them at the wastewater plant. And the only reason I mentioned all of these, uh, those factors is because um, all of those factors um, uh, contribute to um, yeah. cancer. Yeah, environmental uh, factors, yeah. Yeah, environmental factors, which I never, you know, put together. And I, and I, and I wouldn't even really say it is related to, to my prostate cancer, but I have to when you say go back and think about, you know, your formative years, I have to go back and think about all of that 
as to where I am today. However, again, uh, growing up uh, in, in, you know, a two parent household, um, we never really uh, talked about uh, male health. Uh, I had uh, aunts that had breast cancer and that type of thing. And so there was, you know, talk about that kind of thing, but never really had conversations, we'll say, with my dad or any of my uncles as to what um, types of um, ailments they have been subjected to or my grandparents. Uh, I just knew that, you know, by the time I came along, uh, all my grandparents were deceased. So, Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did not and probably still to this day do not have a real clear picture of the health uh, of my, my ancestors, uh, particularly when it comes to cancers in men. Uh, along this journey, though, I have determined that I have some cousins uh, that have prostate cancer, first and second cousins, uh, but I can't point to uh, anything in my father's lineage that says that his line uh, had prostate cancer, but I don't know what many of them passed away from. Well, and what you're saying is not something that is not uncommon within our community in the sense that we don't know this history. And unfortunately, by the time we know, it's almost a little bit too late. It's usually when we come down with some ailments and you start trying to do the mapping and like, I remember, you know, this person being sick, but then we know we don't know exactly what happened. I guess the lesson here is, you know, being forthcoming about our family history and asking those questions. Um, the way the world is right now, we can't but just live in that level of no knowing. Of course, there's some situations where maybe if both parents passed away at a very young age and you don't have those history, but we don't have a lot of excuse anymore to keep, you know, um, hiding those information and when i say hide i'm also very careful because sometimes when people do that thing of not disclosing those information they're not trying to be evil or just you know disingenuous they actually think by not talking about it they are putting their family you know um in a safe place like they're not trying to make them stress out about what they're going through but ultimately it puts them in danger if you don't know your your family history right yeah yeah and so at some point uh, now we have to break that cycle. Yes. And so I have two sons. They're 20 and 22. And uh, I have already stressed to them that because I have been diagnosed with prostate cancer, uh, the chances of you uh, getting a diagnosis uh, of prostate cancer has gone up exponentially. Yeah. So you need to... Uh, as soon as possible, and they're only 20 and 22. Hey, uh, them young. <laughs> begin to baseline your PSA uh, and uh, make sure that you know what it is. Um, I'm sure that here coming up, we'll talk a little bit more about PSA or my personal PSA scores and all of that. <laughs> um, but uh, I stress to them, sometimes a PSA is not enough. And so um, I spread that message now to 
uh, most everybody that I talk to, and I talk to people quite frequently now about prostate cancer because uh, the instances of it are becoming more prevalent prevalent among many people that I know, younger people that I know. And so uh, I begin to um, just stress to them as part of your normal routine health maintenance, you get certain checks and not to be afraid of all the testing methods that are out there. And, and I, I appreciate that PSA on PSA. I see what you did there, Mr. Cole. Really appreciate that. And so I had two questions, follow-up questions for men who might who will listen to this. And I, I don't know what it's like, like to be a man one, two, and then I can't imagine just the stress of having prostate cancer that puts a little bit of, I guess, dent on a man's masculinity from what I've observed from talking to a lot of, you know, you. So, but for men who are, they don't know how to begin that conversation, what are some tips, you know, um, in helping them begin that conversation of talking to their family, especially their progenies, like their sons about their perceived or inherited susceptibility to this cancer? That's one part of my question. I have another one, but I'll let you answer this one first. Uh, so with my sons, of course, the uh, the conversation was easy. Hey, dad's sick. Dad has something. Dad has something that you could possibly have down the road, and we go from there. Um, and so um, I, you know, just began to explain to them what I have and uh, what could possibly happen to you. We haven't had the full conversations yet of uh, everything that I've gone through uh, as far as the uh, uh, recovery process, but we're going to get to that because they're developing and they're becoming um, their own young men now, and it will be time to uh, talk about that. But interestingly enough, um, a week ago Sunday, a young man at my church approached me, and he knows that I've had prostate cancer and I've talked to him before uh, about it. And uh, I guess he's probably 40. He's not quite 45. So, Hmm. you know, early forties. And so he says, I don't know if something's wrong, but um, I just have a weird feeling. And then he circled from his ab- abdomen down to his knees. I have a weird fe- feeling in that area. Uh, he wanted to be more specific to narrow it down to uh, urinary issues, but I guess he didn't feel comfortable, yeah. so he he went broad. <laughs> and, and so immediately um, I, I went into, it is time for you to you know, schedule an appointment, schedule an appointment with the urologist. I said, have you, have you had a PSA before? Well, I don't know what that is. Haven't had one. I said, well, you know, by this time you should have had one and you should know uh, what it is. But anytime you begin to uh, feel something, that's really and a sign that you should immediately go because now we're kind of getting outside of the window because 
prostate cancer is kind of like high blood pressure uh, as when they say can yeah. be the silent killer yeah. yeah okay by the time you really start having symptoms mm. you know your your uh, your cancer has That's begun to to develop uh, you know and so uh it was not difficult to start the conversation with him when he just indicated that he had a funny feeling. And so I've had a number of conversations with other individuals, uh, pretty much the same way. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'm urinating more at night. Well, you know, uh, my urine stream is slow, but I'm just getting old. And I tell them that that's a myth. An old man is not supposed to pee like what we say an old man pees like. He's supposed yeah. to have a good stream um, as well so to eliminate those toxins from his body. And when they begin to slow down, then you begin to need to uh, address that issue. So... Did I, that I, I like that. Answer your question. Yeah, you know, it did. It did a lot. It did a lot. Like just finding ways to get that information out. Now, another thing that we found from the study is that while most men are reticent in talking to their kids about the ones that end up doing it, there's a way they're direct more with their sons. When it comes to their daughters, they're not quite equipped. And this is important because we've seen some cross linkages between prostate cancer in fathers and gynecological cancers like cervical cancer and breast cancer in their daughters as well. Like through the BRCA gene linkage, there's also the Lynch syndrome. So for men who might have daughters and go like, well, I don't have sons, so <laughs> that message is not for me. But no, it's also for you. Um, are there slightly different framings for the messages that you are able to share with them? Because I know you have both. You have both sons and daughters. I, I have, uh, yes, I have both sons and daughters. And unfortunately, um, I have three daughters. My middle daughter, uh, she's 40 years old, uh, was recently diagnosed with cervical cancer. And so she is uh, preparing to have um, surgery um, next month, next early month, next yeah. month. And then to begin to treat, well, she's treating chemically right now um, with uh, the... Um, the cervical cancer, uh, but then you know, after the surgery, of course they'll they'll have a better idea of what treatment processes they need to pursue, and so the conversations regarding uh, cancers with my daughters has become easier for me to have with them. Uh, because of uh, some of the similarities of uh, things that you're going to go through, uh, this mental uh, health portion is uh, extremely important. Uh, my daughter, I, I can tell from talking to her, uh, I talk to her daily, that um, it is it is having a real mm. mental toll on her. Mm. She has children. She has two boys, two two teenage boys and a teenage daughter. And so, uh, and I've told them 
of course. Grandpa has prostate cancer. You may be subject to it because you're in that lineage. And now that your mother has cancer, uh, although it's cervical cancer, it is still a cancer. We must be aware of our our health. Yeah. And so I'm able to talk to her. And then I'm able to speak to my other two daughters, probably in what I call a more aggressive tone, because at one point I felt that they needed to be more attentive and helpful to their sister uh, because this could be them six months, a year, five yeah. years. Because yeah. we don't, you know, we don't know. We do know that uh, there are links uh you know, in, in the lineage, once you have it, but we don't know who it's going to hit next. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so it has made the conversation because she has it. It has made speaking with my daughters uh, a lot easier. And an additional two of my daughters have sons. And yeah. so they need to be aware. Okay. Wow. Uh, and wishing your daughter a speedy recovery, and I guess good on you for telling your grandchildren, your grandsons about just the, you know, what could be ahead of them in the future. Hopefully they don't come down with it, but at least they have that knowledge down. They can make that decision going on. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about how your cancer was diagnosed. Now, from um, from just this few years of research I've been doing. It, it, it seems that most men, it just they just came upon it, you know. Maybe I'll say three out of ten men that would talk to were the ones doing their yearly screenings. Like, they were very on top of things. And so by the time they were diagnosed, it was almost like, oh, yeah, we, my doctor wasn't comfortable because my PSA jumped up a year before. But for other men, the majority of the men, it seemed like it was just like, oh, you know, I was just strolling by work. They had a, a, a booth, like a health um, fair booth that was free, and I just, you know, stumbled upon it. I heard about the PSA. I took the test, and they called me that my levels were high. There seemed to be no a, a lot of, like, intentionality as far as keeping their health checks done every year. What was your diagnosis like? And whenever you heard um, about the diagnosis, was also the first thing that came through your mind as far as when they told you you had prostate cancer? Okay. I like to say that my journey was not the typical. Everything that you just uh, explained about uh, yearly checks or once once a check and it's high or whatever, I kind of, I kind of feel like that. I'm, I'm thrown into all of that. Okay. Uh, since I was 28 years old, uh, I have an annual physical. I've, I, I've had uh, two physicians, and they both have been very aggressive about uh, uh, checking, you know, uh, not only for hypertension, my kidney function and all that, but uh, checking for prostate cancer. And so for many years, I would get a digital exam, uh, and that probably started when I was maybe 29, 30 years old, um, and getting a digital exam. That exam, as we know, most men just don't, don't want do to yeah. take yeah. I want to do it. But I was accustomed to it. And one of the reasons is because my older brother, um, his lifelong dream was to be a doctor. 
And so he went through med school and he achieved his dream. However, he, he did pass away at a very early age of 31. He's four years older than me. But what he instilled into me, because I was his guinea pig through med school, <laughs> get checked, get everything checked. And so from that point forward, I did. Uh, at some point, the doctor switched to the PSA um, as the uh, preferred form of examination. And so I had my PSA done every year. And every year I would be in the uh, 0.7 to 0.9 range. And I'm, I was that way for years. Uh, one year I went from 0. Uh, 0.8 the year before to 1.1. Not a significant increase at all, particularly because I'm aging, you know. However, aggressive doctor said, hey, um, let me rerun it. Let me give you an antibiotic. Let me do some things to check just to make sure. And we did that. And of course, it went back down to the 0.8 range. So the following year, uh, it went to uh, 1.3 maybe, mm-hmm. and we did did the same thing. However, at that point now, I'm approaching 60 years old. So a normal PSA for a 60-plus individual yeah. is going to be between 1 and 2. I'm still in a good range. Uh, in 2021, 62 years old, I had a one point, about a one point, one point seven PSA. Uh, the PSA level was nothing that concerned any of the doctors. However, I was having some urinary, other urinary issues, and so I decided to go see a, a urologist. And the urologist um, looked at my PSA, and then the urologist asked me. Uh, could she do a digital? I'm, I'm fine with it. I've, I've had a number of them. And so she did a digital exam and she was unsure. So she came back to the room and she asked me, well, can I do a second digital? Huh. And I looked at her and I said, hey, you know, you're playing games or whatever. <laughs> you know, but she did. Did the second one. And she again said, I think I felt something, but I'm not sure. Mm. Just we do a biopsy uh, just to just to be sure. But that's your choice. And I said, do the biopsy. And we did the biopsy. And so it turns out I had a low PSA, continuously low PSA, a lot lower than many men my age. But because I chose to do the digital exam, uh, there was an indication that something was going on. And uh, then we went to a biopsy. And, of course, I had the cancer cells within my system. Wow. So I now stress to men that I talk to, PSA alone is not, not enough. You know, don't be afraid. To save your life is basically what it boils down to. 
and, and for those that are wondering what data means, so that's called the data rectal examination or the DRE for short. And this is where um, a finger is, usually gloved finger is, you know, because the way the prostate is located, you know, you have to be at a position where um, a finger is inserted through the anus to feel for the prostate. And, um, and usually there should be a feeling that you, if you feel something differently, then you know that, okay, there's something off. Now, it's not like confirmatory unless um, uh, a biopsy, meaning a sample of that tissue is, you know, um, taken and to the lab and seen under the microscope. But that test itself is what you've probably heard a lot about. There's been many jokes made about it. Um, different animations where the doctor snaps their fingers and, you know, laughs in a very evil way. And um, so during that procedure, the patient usually lies on their side with their knees bent, or they might be asked to bend forward while standing. And the healthcare provider will gently insert their lubricated or gloved finger into the rectum through the anus. And it's supposed to feel for um, the size of the gland, how consistent it feels like. Are there any abnormalities? Are there lumps? You know, and so, yeah, it's not very comfortable from what I've heard. It's not very, very comfortable. And for you to have, you know, put yourself through that a couple of times, especially considering your PSA wasn't super high in the first place, but it ended up being that you had a very high glycine score. So I'm, I really appreciate that. And I think that the lesson here is that make sure you're working hand in hand with your healthcare provider. Because there was something you said. You, one thing I like about you, Mr. Cole, you have, you're the king of quotes. You have a lot of quotes, which is very good for me as a mixed method researcher. Um, you talked about, um, you said something one time during the meeting. You were like, build a healthy relationship with your um, healthcare provider so that when, you, when you're healthy, so that when you're not healthy, you will know or they will know as well. So I, I think that's just a key um, thing here is having that partnership with your physician to be sure that when things go wrong, they are on top of things. But also learn how to advocate for yourself. And seeking those second opinions if needed. So thanks for that reminder, Mr. Cole. Mm-hmm. So l- let's talk about the treatment. See, you had um, the radical um, prostatectomy, which is really a surgery to take out the um, prostate. Now, um, for what was the stage of your cancer again? Do you remember what stage was it? Stage one or two? Uh- it was stage because I had cancer. The uh, urologist said we have to stage it as a two, okay. and and because cancer cells were prevalent, two C. I see. Two C was the greatest crime. Okay, got yeah. got it. So, um, well, radical prostatectomy is really a surgery that takes out the prostate gland, right? And yes, it's. It's one of the most common ones, especially when it comes to um, like not super aggressive forms as far as the staging. Now, there are some complications that can, um, what's the word, arise from that. But usually the surgery can be done through different approaches. They can do an open surgery where they make an incision in the lower abdomen to access the prostate gland. They can also do it laparoscopically or through a robot assistant surgery. But really, the idea is just to take out the entire um, prostate gland along with the surrounding tissues, right? 
Now, the yes. the choice of surgery depends on the stage of the cancer and also the patient's condition. And um, there are some side effects from that. Or not, even, let's put it, long-term complications, like I've been corrected many times. You can have urinary incontinence, meaning someone can lose you know, control of their bladder. This can be temporary or permanent. There can be some issues um, achieving or even maintaining erection, which also has a lot of implication for a man. Um, but it's also very important for patients to discuss the pros and cons to make that informed decision as to the best course of therapy for them. So for you, Mr. Cole, what made you choose the radical prostatectomy over the other forms of surgery or even treatment options that they are? A couple reasons. Uh, <clears throat> one of the uh, first reasons, well, the first ur- urologist I saw, and I reason I say the first, uh, uh, because of uh, health insurance restrictions and and, and uh, group procedures, I had to switch to another, a second urologist. But the first urologist uh, recommended a um, prostatectomy because um, she felt that uh, the cancer was probably just localized within the prostate itself. And if you just remove it, you typically remove all the cancer and then that, you know, pretty much solves your problem as, as if you want to put it that way. Mm. And so, uh, again, this is the same urologist, though, that told me as soon as possible. <laughs> so what that meant uh, to me was, okay, I don't have a whole lot of time to begin to investigate other treatment forms. Now, she did uh, suggest that you could go uh, the radiation form of treatment, but if you go with the radiation form and it does not get all the cancer, then you can't can't have the prostatectomy because of the damage that's done by the radiation to the surrounding tissues. As far as I got with that point, <laughs> and so she referred me to a, a surgeon because she was no longer doing surgeries to remove it. And then, however, the surgeon I went to uh, was not in my group, uh, was not covered in my group by my medical insurance. So now I had to look for another uh Surgeon. You're wrong. Yeah. Surgeon. Yeah. This took about three weeks. My what? in my in my head, my as soon as possible <laughs> because I asked her, Well, what's soon as possible to you? She said within the next three months. Well, it took me uh two weeks from getting the the news uh that I had cancer. And one of your earlier comments was, what happened when I got the news? Yes. Um, she took me in the office and said, hey, got your biopsy uh, results back. And typically everything is, you know, pretty much normal for most guys. It's usually BHP, benign, heightened prostate, where yeah. the prostate. But in I, your case, yeah. you have cancer. You have cancer. And she said it just like that. You have cancer. Wow. And it was kind of matter of fact coming out of her mouth. But that hit me like a ton of bricks Mm. because I have cancer. 
only thing I know about cancer is I've had aunts and stuff that have died from cancer, mm-hmm. breast cancer, but cancer. Cancer nonetheless, and, yeah. Yeah. And so it kind of stops your world for a moment. And other guys that I've talked to that have had the same thing happen, and they say, it's, you know, we, we're dealing with it now, but when the doctor looks you in the face and says, you have cancer, you really don't know what to say, what to do, or how that affects you. So you just freeze in your tracks. So anyway, uh, all that two weeks has passed. Now another three weeks have gone by, and I finally get to the physician that's going to do the work. And I ask him, what about other forms of uh, treatment? And his response was, I do surgeries. This is what I do. <laughs> if you really want to know about other forms of treatment, you're going to have to find oh, another that, that, that does those. He was being honest and upfront with me, you know, and he says, but in your case, I think that we can get all of the cancer. I looked at your MRIs. I looked at everything. I think that we could get it all. I would suggest to you that you have the prostatectomy. And then we went into the side effects of what you just mentioned. Uh, there could be some incontinency. There could be some erectile dysfunction. Uh, but looking at yours, I think I can do pretty good because I do robotically. Um, you have some cancer cells on the left side of your prostate that are up near the nerve that controls uh, erectile function. But I think I can get it all without disturbing most of it. Wow. And so I said, okay. When can I have it? Well, you had your surgery June 2nd, uh, biopsy June 2nd. We have to wait 60 days. Another 60 the, days? From the biopsy, though. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, yeah, I, when he said 60 days, I'm like, wait a minute, you know. But he said from the biopsy. And so that will put you up uh, mid-August, August 11th. We can do it then. And so... Uh, I scheduled for August 11th and did it because I looked at my clock ticking. I don't have, it took me three, three weeks to get to you. What's it going to take me to get to another urologist who does right. uh, therapy or some other form. And I just, that is that as soon as possible thing in my head from my previous experiences is what took over. And wow. so I had to surgery. Now, during so it, it came down to a, a mixture of factors for you. One was the availability of a surgeon in your area, and also just the expediency. You know, you had to get it done, and the schedule just opened up for a surgeon. But looking back now, two questions for you: If you could do it differently, would you still go the same route, or would you have pushed for just you know talking to other forms of? Um, physicians, maybe those that might be doing radiotherapy versus hormonal therapy, or, and then do you have any regrets? Okay. So that's really one question all in one. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, he mentioned um, cancerous tissues on the left side. Had the surgery after the, the week follow-up. He says, we did good. We took out, you know, your lymph nodes, seminal tubes. They, they, I call it the male uh, equivalent to the female hysterectomy. We go in and we take all your inner plumbing out, yeah. basically is what yeah. happens. Yeah. And he said, on the left side, got it all, everything, no problem. He said, but what I didn't see was on the right side. Mm-mm. And I had to go up toward the nerve and take a little little more. So he says, I don't know how that's going to leave you. Uh, we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, but how are you doing so far? Well, immediately I had no problems with incontinency. Uh, I wore a pad the first day out of the hospital. And after that, I didn't have the leakage or any of that kind of stuff. So I was doing well there. But when it came down to uh, erectile function, uh, I had issues, okay? And so because I was having issues, uh, I the regret that I had at that point was to not have taken more time mm. to look at other uh, Options, forms. yeah. And then I felt I was a little misinformed uh, because I was sure he told me that with uh, the prostatectomy versus the radiation, radiation had more instances of erectile dysfunction than the prostatectomy. Mm, However, as we had our town hall Yes. Uh, seminars with uh, Dr. Roach. Dr. Roach, yeah. He indicated it was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and I'm, you know, so I felt a little betrayed. Mm. So for the whole first year, uh, I experienced, you know, uh, erectile dysfunction. That's just plain and simple. Uh, so we tried medications. We tried um, all three of the leading ones like Levitra, uh, Tadalafil, and Sindelafil. Levitra. Yeah, yeah. Viagra. Yeah. Vi- uh, Viagra, uh, Viagra, Cialis. Cialis, yeah. And, yeah, all of those. Yeah, Levitra is Vidalafil, yeah, yeah. I think we tried shot. Oh, the shots. No. Yeah. Oh, wow. Tried shots, and the shots did, didn't work either. However, what he said was, you got to give yourself about eighteen months to recover. And of course, that's a long time, you know. Uh, so wait, that, yes, so re- yes, 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 yes. It's just what it is. Yeah, to find out. It ain't going to work either, mm. you know, if you mm. want to put it that way. And so, again, at that point, I, I, I felt, you know, betrayed. I felt very uh, regretful that I did not look into 
more forms of treatment. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, from our town hall meetings and that kind of thing, I kind of concluded as well after more research that my as soon as possible probably wasn't as soon as I thought it needed to be. I could have had more time to take my time uh, to research and look at other forms of treatment. So let's now fast forward up to just about to today. So once I crossed that 18 month uh, mark, uh, things did begin to improve. They got, you know, a little better. Uh, Some results uh, from medication, you know, I could, you know, feel some, some, some results from it. Uh, But as I get up to today, I am doing pretty good now. That's good. That's good. So any, any regrets that I had at that point, um, have begun begun to subside because my body now is returning to its new normal uh, form of fun. Okay. Uh, The only, you know, because of the procedures itself, uh, things like orgasms and that kind of thing are are not uh, what you, what they used to be for you. In other words, you can, you still have, you can still have an orgasm, but you, you don't transmit the seminal fluids because the tubes are gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, basically, if you have any sperm in your body, it's just reabsorbed back into your body because there's no transmission uh, forms of it. From that particular standpoint, I probably, again, would have looked at other forms of uh, treatment that didn't necessarily uh, remove those options, uh, yeah, yeah, those yeah. organs and, and yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. I mean, I must say thank you so much for being kind about that part. I can't imagine what is it talking about. And I know this is where a lot of men struggle. Um, the the thought of just losing that functionality because it's super. These are important stuff, right? And um, and I think this also emphasizes the importance of making sure that as healthcare providers, we're providing the pros and cons and making sure that whenever we're giving our patients options, it's something that they choose, not because their hands are tied. Because in your case, you will have definitely benefited from having conversations with knowing more about the other options available to you, right? And um, so, yeah, thanks for thanks for sharing that, especially things you probably would want to do differently. Now, um, as we, I have two more questions, two broad questions for you. One, one would be, you talked about new normal. And in, in the study that you've been a part of and also in the work we've been doing together, we're definitely seeing the effect of age, right? That younger people, um, when I say younger, those that are late 40s, early 50s, now, the average age of diagnosis in our study was 60-something, which is not so significantly different from what the you know, literature tells us about the average age of diagnosis. But we still have men falling in the younger demographic. Now, men who are younger and who also have younger wives, so they might be older but have younger wives, they tend to struggle a lot with just redefining what quality of life means for them post-diagnosis, post-treatment, post-whatever you know, um, surgery they had and whatnot. 
for for you, how have you been able to cope with just this new normal? Because I imagine it, you've had to mourn the loss of some functionality, but you've also redefined. Okay, this is the new life now. What are some coping mechanisms that you've had? Because you're you're such a positive person. I've been working with you for the past two years, and I mean, you're very frank about things you go through, but you also you're very positive about life, and and that is something I also appreciate working with you. But for men who are finding it very, very hard, what are some ways they can redefine what quality of life means and be able to move forward? Not moving on, because this is this is reality we're talking about. So, um, and particularly for a a younger guy that has somewhat of a younger family, um, the way I began to uh, cope and deal with this is that my youngest granddaughter is eight years old. Mm. Uh, my youngest son is 20. And then my next son is 22. My girls are a little older. They're uh, 36, 37, I'm sorry, 40 and 44. So they're a little older. Um, and they have children as well. I have a 25-year-old grandson and three granddaughters, three grandsons. And I begin to say, when it comes down to uh, whether, and I'll just be frank, when it comes down to whether I can have an erection or I can see my granddaughter get married, what's what I'd rather do? Oh. Okay. And so I begin to, as they begin to um, have achieved different milestones in their lives, uh, they graduate kindergarten, graduate sixth grade. Uh, I got one that's uh, getting ready to graduate high school next year. I've got a granddaughter who uh, goes to Spelman. She's in her senior year. Uh, she's got a 3.8, 3.9 GPA, um. ready, to, ready to do some things in life. And do I want to see those things? Or do I want to have 30 to 45 seconds of pleasure or whatever, you know, is the way I put it. And so I begin to say that there is still a lot of life left for me to uh, enjoy, a lot more adventures for me to see. And it has to be much more than uh, just saying I have a... Uh, sex life because that's very small very contained as you get older anyway it begins to um, I won't say totally disappear but it it is not like when you're 20 years old for sure because 20 was 40 was different from 20 and of course yeah. 60 is different from yeah. 40 <laughs> way different from 20 you know? <laughs> and so uh, for that young man, I would tell him, you have a family, you have a wife, you know, uh, there's more to, to, to life. There are other things that you can do. I had a, um, one of our, um, panelists from before, um, told us from the female perspective that there are other things you and your husband can do. And as I was going into the surgery, uh, she relayed that kind of information to me. And I was very fortunate 
to get that kind of information up front. And that's what I called a real life, real view perspective, because she was not happy with the way things were going. However, she felt that you need to know that there are going to be speed bumps along the way. Mm. However, you can overcome them. And that's what I would share with them. And that's that's what has gotten me through to the next stage. You know what? That's, I mean, I don't even know what to say to top that. I think I'm just going to let that be. And I thank you just for explaining that because I think at the very core of it, that's what, that's a good attitude to have with life as far as posturing ourselves. There's some things that don't work quite the way we want to, for them to work, but we can definitely redefine our experiences. Like for you, it was, I have, you know, my grandkids, I have my children, I could invest in those experiences. And, and and just finding a way to move forward. So you redefining what quality of life now means to you. I think that would be hard. That would be um, the, the, the key point to this. And I imagine for those who might be younger, it's a lot difficult for them. Because in, in the study, older men would say things like, well, even if I didn't have prostate cancer, the older I got, my erectile dysfunction, for example, was supposed to decline anyway. So, yeah, you know, it's just as well that prostate cancer accelerated that process. So for those who might be younger, I think another thing to emphasize is the importance of mental health um, for services, maybe talking to somebody to find ways to cope with this. We don't um, minimize these issues. Um, we think they are very important and they can be quite life-threatening. Um, I had a man in the study talk about feeling suicidal and because mm-hmm. they couldn't have an erection for a whole year, even way past the time point the doctor gave him to resume functionality. It wasn't until he was fitted with a mechanical pump to assist mm-hmm. in that process, that he felt his life getting back to normal. And for him, that was important to him. So for you might, who might be listening, if that's like the absolute important thing, nothing else compares to this, then please seek help. You know, there's always, always ways around this. Seek help and don't wallow in that, you know. Alone. Now, quickly and lastly would be this. You are one of our community advisory board members, and it means a lot to me. I have learned a lot from all of you on the board, and your ability to just give your time, your resources once a month to get together, and even the interactions, even between our meetings. Um, I've bragged a lot about you all, and just how I feel like I can never do research any differently from this. It's just, you know, you get access to the community you're working with, and you're working together. I mean, as researchers, we have no problem, you know, talking about the data we get from our participants. But do they even know that the data is not just, you know, for them, but it's also about them? And I think working with you all has really elevated that game for me. So I want to just say shout out to my community advisory board members. And even getting together, getting you all together, whenever I had you as part of the interview process during my um, research, I could sense a difference in the way you all talked. There was this passion, like beyond just being a survivor, which I think is already amazeballs. You had this fire to just be like, I want to go out there and change my community. I don't want people to go through what I went through. You usually were more open. You were more forthcoming. You were, I was like, I'm going to tap into that. So whenever I would reach out to you to ask, hey, would you mind being part of the board? You all said yes, you know, and, and that to me has really, you know, again, like I said, I've learned a lot. So for those who might be wondering, they are called the CAB members, which is the Community Advisory Board members. We have about six members, and they are made up of um, 
survivors, you know, from all walks of life living across, you know, the U.S. They also serve as um, our first level human subjects review group to ensure that the process we're using as far as research-wise is appropriate for them. They also provide valuable insights and advice on how to approach, you know, um, our participants, how to disseminate the findings, the ideas behind the town hall and even doing more town halls and just positioning ourselves in the community. They have, you know, been very, very helpful, even in recruiting and promoting that linkages between the diverse communities and research projects. So for you, what have you, what would you say you've gotten the most out of this? And because I think it's important what you do, by the way. Well, first of all, uh, I want to say thank you for uh, inviting me and allowing me to be a member, a part of this process. as you stated, it, it's uh, we have about six members, a very uh, diverse board. Um, you know, being able to, uh, and I won't, I won't use 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 their names, but being able to look at one member who's uh, twenty plus years out from yeah. his diagnosis and uh, uh, his journey, and to see him still on fire. We should put it that way. Yeah. Is very and very encouraging uh, for me. One of the thing, important things that you said is uh, we want to get to our community uh, and let them know what we're going through. But the bigger part of that is to let most men, many men, know you don't have to go through all of this. If you just stay on top of your health, a lot of the stuff that uh, we may have had to go through or men will go through is simply because we don't take care of our physical health. And so uh, the erectile dysfunction, the prostate cancer, uh, colon cancers and all of, all of those can be uh, significantly reduced if they're caught in the early stage. So what we're saying as CAB members is that we've gone through cancer. However, you don't necessarily have to go through to the degree that we've gone through. And many of us, you know, we're still early stage catchers, uh, but you can, for most people, you can even be better than that. With prostate cancer, caught in its earliest stage, 99% yes. cure with no adverse uh, effects on you. Okay? And so that's the message that I think all of us feel is important to the rest of our brotherhood, to the rest of our younger men, is that if we do what we're supposed to do, then you won't have to go through. And if you do go through, it's not to the severest of uh, treatments and severest cases that you hear about out there. And the other thing is, don't when you when you when, when you have an ailment, stay away from Google. Stay away from the internet. <laughs> Dr. Google. <laughs> yeah, stay away from. Google, find you a team, a team of physicians. Mental health is as equally as important as physical health 
and they go hand in hand. If you're mentally ill, your body is going to come down to that level. And it, you know, and if you're physically sick, it can bring your mental level down. So get you a mental health professional as well as a physician. And I think you'll do very well. And your quality of life uh, will be like what us cab members are saying it is yes. for us now. Yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Oh, wow. Um, thank you. I think this has been such a delightful and enlightening conversation. And for um, academics like me who might be interested in doing more of community work and finding ways to work with the community, it's just getting started wherever you are. And it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of resources, but it's worth it. Because that time you spend mm-hmm. building this group together, you save it up all on the end, even way much more. Because the relationship is just very rich and you're, you're I mean, we're going to keep working together for as long as possible. And even thinking of new ideas and pivots and um, pilot studies and, you know, different kinds of ideas. They've been super, super in- instrumental in, in, in just uplifting our, our game when it comes to research. And Mr. Cole, I have learned, as always, from you today, um, just your passion and your spirit of advocacy and your vulnerability in talking about these very difficult issues. And I just want to say thank you for coming on the show today. I appreciate it. One thing for you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, Could you, on this, very briefly on this podcast, a little bit about the importance of research and uh, black men, males, participating in research projects. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, this is, it's so important. We don't really have those representations, right? Um, First of all, I'm very passionate about black men's health, especially even black studies, period, because I think that we haven't done that enough. And so here's, and thank you, Mr. Cole, for that reminder. Here's a, a call out to action. We need to be able to start tackling some of these health issues that are preventable one or even that have um, a higher recovery rate and better outcomes when detected early. So earlier on, Mr. Cole talked about um, the survival rate for prostate cancer when it's diagnosed early. Of all cancers that I know, like for example, pancreatic cancer has a very horrible outcome. I think most cases like 9% of survival in five years. So if you brought out like 100 people who had the surgery or had the treatment, then maybe nine out of those 100 would have survived. But in prostate cancer, survival rate is about 99%, you know, 95 to 99%. It's a good, good, good odds to have. So in being able to prolong our lives and do better, we need to be, you know, involved in, in these clinical trials and studies. And there are a lot of... um checks and balances to ensure that your rights as an individual is maintained. Like Mr. Cole works with us, you know, he's been a part of our study. He's also a community advisory board member. So the roles have shifted many times and he can tell you that some things I have to make sure that I put in place that his right as a participant is not, you know, um, violated. And I have my university also, and then also my funding mechanisms, making sure that 
things are done in an ethical way. So there are checks and balances. Just in case you might be worried about all oh, my confidentiality, we cannot break that rules. If I break some rules, I'll end up in jail. That's, you know, for that. We also need to be involved in trial, in research studies, so we can identify the disparities. There are a lot of things that are plaguing the black community, like issues of hypertension, even cancers. You know, and if we don't do the studies, if we don't get involved in it, how do we move along? How do we get a healthy population going? We also need to be able to understand our risk factors, right? And without the studies, we don't know them. And in building interventions and treatments and things that would help, we need your insights, we need your inputs to be able to understand how various people would respond to various treatments. We also need to make sure that we're empowering, you know, man. Mr. Cole talked about things he has learned, you know, from being part of the um, community advisory board. Like, imagine if he had something like this when he was about to make his decision regarding his therapy. Imagine if he had access to those town hall meetings that we've held to be able to empower him about his decisions regarding, okay, no, I don't want to have this um, option. I want to go with the other option because I have heard from a physician or I have talked to many men who have, you know, gone through this. So these are some of the um, importance of being part of that. So this is our research is crucial for understanding and addressing these disparities and also overall improving the health outcomes for black men. And if you if you don't participate, we, we don't move forward as a as a um as a group. So yeah, um, this is why it's very important for us to be involved. So get involved today, please. And thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Cole. Did I leave anything out? <laughs> I really, I, I appreciate that came out from you. That that's that's just splendid that it came from you, and I I super 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 appreciate that. Okay. Thank you. You did very. Thank very you. Well. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be in touch uh, with you shortly after this, but I want to say thank you for coming on the show. And everyone, um, where can people find you if they really want to talk? Maybe you have a man listen to this study, listen to this um episode, and they would like to connect with you and maybe hear more about your process. Because I want to be far removed from that process. Because I imagine that it might be nicer for them to get directly through you. How can they contact you if they, they wanted to ask more questions? Uh, I, I have a uh, email address okay. that they can email me. Um, it is, you want to give it? Yes, yes, uh, yes. M- yeah. M R P L Cole. M R P L Cole at Yahoo. Um, I can be reached. Uh, I can be reached through you yes. uh, if they reach out to you and want uh, uh, me to reach out to them. We can do that, and um, I, I will respond that way. Um, I'm a little hesitant about the phone numbers because oh yeah, let's not be, do that. Be, no, no, <laughs> let's not do that one. Yeah, because of the number of spam calls, you might get lost that way. Yes, yes. But if you Make direct contact either through email or uh, through Dr. Mo here. Um, then we can reach out to you, and uh, we'll be happy to assist you with whatever we can. Uh, let you know what our journey is. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to be frank and real with you. You know, I'm. You know, a lot of men are not going to come out and tell you that, hey, something is not working right because, but I'm going to tell you, it, was, it wasn't working right and I wasn't happy. Yes, so, yes, yes, yes. But there's nothing I can do. You know? <laughs> Thank you. And Ms. You can, Mr. Cole is very, you know, very um, responsive. I'll tell you that much. Very, very responsive. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. You were about saying something. Oh, I, I was going to say, but I'm going to be real with you and uh, I'll let you know that uh, uh, t- 
time does heal a lot of wounds. Uh, you will have to follow the advices of, of your healthcare professionals and you got to be patient. Be a little patient. Uh, that patient kind of, kind of goes hand in hand with mental health, mental, the mental portion. And as you heal mentally, you'll find your body to begin healing better physically as well. Yes. Agreed. Thank you so much, um, Mr. Cole. Well, on behalf of everyone on the podcast, I want to say thank you for joining again and um, I'll see you around. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Good to hear. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> Well, that was the episode with Mr. Cole. I I mean, I'm just always blown away by this kind of conversations, especially when they come from a place of just exploring, you know, their life and their experiences and their stories. And just thank you, Mr. Cole, for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to see more of this episode, don't forget to check out the podcast at the Morrisville Podcast, www.mosibyl. We are on all major podcast platforms, wherever you get your pod- podcast. I remain your host, Snow Sibyl. Catch you on another episode of the Marisable Podcast. Take care. Love you. Bye.